Well, it feels like it's been a little while since I've kind of stood up here and had an opportunity to uh, to share from God's Word with you all. It's been a bit of a whirlwind since Easter, which is almost like a month ago now we're coming up on. Uh, and in this past month, i uh, just give you a bit of an update on on our lives. We uh, Around the Easter time, we, we felt it was time and appropriate to list our house again. As many of you know, we've been kind of on this ongoing saga of when do we get to leave the south side and finally recommute out here to the west end. And so we listed our house, and uh, long story short, uh, we sold it in 36 hours. So I just kind of banged that out. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Uh, along, along with that was a very short possession time. And so we had about, well, just short of four weeks to, to get out, find a place, buy a place, move in, get settled, whatnot. So it's been a bit of a whirlwind with, with packing and moving. And we did find a new home that we are just so blessed and so comfortable in out in the Seacourt area. So we're now in the Lewis Farms community which is one of the goals that we've had for quite a while. Uh, and at the same time, we've been going through a lot of family coming to town because Joshua was graduating and I had a conference in Chicago. And so we are just kind of all over the map for the last number of weeks. Quite a whirlwind. You know, there's one thing that we've been doing a lot of, Nadine and I have been doing a lot of since, um, since all that has been taking place. And it's something that almost everyone else in the world claims to have done at least once in their life whether you're young or whether you're old, whether you're male or female. Statistically, actually, women do it more than men. Whether you're in a different part of the world or if you live in this part of the world. If you are of, of a higher class or of a lower social class. If you have different backgrounds. If you're religious, you're an atheist. Most people claim to have done this thing that Nadine and I have done a whole lot of over the past few weeks of this whirlwind journey. And what is this popular universal phenomenon? Prayer. Prayer. We've been doing a lot of praying. And so has most of the world, as it turns out, which was surprising to me. You know, you may have heard of the name uh, Reginald Bibby, who is a Canadian sociologist down in Lethbridge. He, a little while ago, surveyed Canadians, asked them about prayer in their own lives. And in the survey he came back with, found that 74% of people claim that they have prayer at some point at some part of their life. Now, I was a little surprised that I was at 74% of Canadians acknowledge to pray privately at some level. You may be surprised by how high that number is as well. But here's the, here's the thing. Just because people are praying doesn't mean they're actually seeking after God. Those can be two very different things. For example, there's, there's, there's prayers that people offer up that are more of an appeal to God. God, I appeal to you to help me to pick the lottery numbers for this week, 649. God, I appeal to you for my favorite team to win. There's these types of prayers that would fit in the survey. And then there's the bargaining prayers. God, I will give $50 to World Vision if you help me pass this test. Lord, if I get a warning on my speeding ticket instead of the actual ticket, I'll give that value to a charity instead of to the government. And then there's the ultimate bargain as we sit down at McDonald's with our double quarter pounder or cheese, large fries, supersized Coke, and we say, Lord, bless this food to my body which I'm not sure even God can make that nutritious. <laughs> See, not only do most of us pray, but most of us also have a lot of questions about prayer. Even those of us who are religiously devout tend to have a lot of questions. Things like, how can I pray more effectively? Because, you know, when I pray, it seems like it doesn't always make a difference. Is there a proper way to pray? Pray. Is there a wrong time, a wrong place, a right style, a wrong style, the proper posture, the wrong posture? What topics are off limits? What topics should I always pray about? Questions like this. And these questions 
can actually lead to a form of pressure that people put upon themselves that leads to guilt in their prayer lives that ends up being counterproductive. Because there's this guilt that I should pray more or I should pray better. And the end result of that is not growing in our prayer, but actually disengaging from prayer, unfortunately. And this isn't a new phenomenon. This isn't uncommon. If you're relating to some of what I just shared, you're not alone. In fact, J.D. Greer, who is a a well-known pastor and the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention, said this recently. He said, if you really want to embarrass the average Christian today, just ask them to tell you about their prayer life. That is the one thing that most Christians are woefully deficient in. See, but these questions, these situations and challenges are not new. You see, from Jesus' earliest followers, they wanted to know how to pray too. They had seen Jesus do it. It was actually part of his regular routine, his regular pattern. In fact, if you open up the Gospel of Luke and and read through the Gospel of Luke, and, and, and especially if you do it in one sitting, you're going to see that Luke shows Jesus at prayer constantly. It's part of his regular rhythm. And in fact, Luke shows Jesus at prayer with unique teachings on prayer and prayer at unique moments in his ministry more than all other three Gospels combined. Luke emphasizes it that much. Now, if you want to know something, if you want to grow in a skill or in a discipline, what is one of the best things to do? To go to an expert. To ask somebody who is proficient in that skill. Somebody who is successful in it. Somebody who has seen positive outcomes from it. To go to that person. And that's exactly what disciples do. In Luke chapter 11, verse 1, we see them looking at Jesus as he's off praying. As was his regular routine, they're seeing him praying. And they're, they're watching, and they're intrigued, and they're curious. But they're respectful, too, because they wait till he's done. And then when he finishes, they walk up to him, and they say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And as Jesus begins his instruction to them, he first acknowledges what I just talked about a moment ago. The fact that there are a lot of people, a wide, wide variety of people who pray. But Jesus acknowledges that there's a lot of people who are praying wrong. And actually, we read in Matthew chapter 6 where we find an account of the Lord's Prayer as well. Where Jesus, before he gets to the Lord's Prayer, the first thing he says, he says, don't go out and pray to look all spiritual. Don't go out and do this, this piousness to kind of build up your own reputation so people look at you and go, oh, look how devout that guy is. He says, if you go out and do that, you're not really seeking the approval of God. You're seeking the approval of man. And when you receive it, Mission accomplished. That's all that you can expect to receive. But then he continues and he goes, also, when you won't pray, don't, don't just sort of ramble on with words like the pagans do. Don't go around just kind of searching for the right formula of words to gain God's attention and his favor. You see, what he's saying there is, is when we pray like that, we're treating prayer like this form of white magic. Where if we can just string together the right incantation, we can somehow manipulate the gods to, to do what we want. To come and, and give us what our wills desire. But you, you see, it's, it's not our words that gain us God's favor. Instead, he says, rather, in verse 9, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, he says, rather, this is how you should pray. And then he gives them the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer that millions and millions have memorized. But do those millions know the meaning? Of the Lord's Prayer. 
You know, there's a good chance that if I started reciting the Lord's Prayer right now, that a high, high percentage of you would join in. We might have some slight variation in words. Some would use the these, thous, and nines, and others would use more contemporary language. But we know the prayer. We know the words. But here's the thing. This is what we're going to look at for the next few weeks. That prayer is like an iceberg. You've seen a picture of an iceberg, how there's like 10% of the ice is above the waterline, and then 90% of the mass is beneath the surface. That's what the Lord's Prayer is like. There's the words that we can see easily, that we can memorize easily, but there is so much depth to the model, not just the words, to the model of prayer that Jesus was giving us. So if you have questions, if you want to know how to pray, if you want to know how to pray better, how to pray with more confidence, pray more effectively, I want to suggest to you that over the next few weeks, the Lord's Prayer can be your guide. And over these next few weeks, we're going to look at one line of the prayer each week to look at the words, but also to look at the meaning, at the purpose, at the depth behind those words. And then, just like Jesus' first followers, we are going to allow Jesus to teach us to pray. So we begin today with the opening lines that are so familiar to most. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's in a name? Hallowed be thy name. What's in a name? Well, at the most basic level, a name is used to distinguish one person from all others. For example, we're obviously in a room here full of people. Full of people. Yet, if I say the, word, uh, the name like, 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 like Sean or, or, or Ruthie or, or Luke or Carol with an E, as I refer to her, you can think of individual people within the room that are associated with that name. However, if I already use the word wife, all of a sudden it becomes less straightforward because about half the room start paying attention, going, what does it mean me? It just means somebody else. And all of us husbands in the room understand that that word wife can be used by all of us but has different definitions, different associations, and those associations and those definitions are not transferable. They're unique and specific to each of us. So the right understanding of the name God is vitally important. And the word God has many meanings throughout history and throughout society. There are other theistic faiths in this world who would define that word differently. There's, there's the God of the Muslim faith, the, the gods of the Hindu faith, there's the indigenous religions, there is Christianity that even has variations of understanding of what that means. But then there's also the gods of our own creation. There's, there's the gods where perhaps we see God and we view God as more of a cosmic vending machine. Where God exists to give me the things that I feel that I need. Or we see God as this cosmic butler. Where he exists to serve me like a genie in a bottle. Other people, one of the prevailing views of the day is to see God as the divine therapist. Where when I'm down or where I'm having a hard time, God exists for the purpose of, of, of making me happy. That's the end goal of it, isn't it? To make me happy. You know, A.W. Tozer said this. This is one, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It is impossible to keep moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous and inadequate. And so when we say the words, our Father in heaven, it serves to define who we are speaking to, but at the same time, it defines what our meaning behind that name is. Now, some view this opening line as perhaps just a, an, a way to identify the recipient as though we were uh, dialing a phone 
or addressing an email or looking for somebody's online profile. It's to make sure our prayer gets to the intended recipient. But if we get the name wrong or if we use the wrong words, then we, we risk missing the recipient. We, we risk missing God or offending God even or getting God's answering machine instead of his direct line. Sometimes people view this opening line in that fashion, but I don't think that's actually the point of what Jesus was talking about in the model here. Because I don't believe God is stymied if we use the wrong word the wrong way. He knows our hearts. He knows our intentions. And if you are new to the faith, or if you are in a situation where you don't have the words, that's not a reason to disengage from prayer. Because God knows your heart. He, he knows your intentions. And I know countless people who have started their spiritual journey with the words, God, if you are there. And he responds. So it's not the words that grant us God's favor. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't address him properly. Because it's incredibly important that we do so. That is what sets us apart from other faiths. And so... When we pray, our Father in heaven, it's not only about addressing the conversation properly, it's actually revealing who we see God to be. So who is God? Well, first of all, we are praying to our sovereign God whom we can actually really never fully know. See, that phrase, in heaven, in heaven, is not really meant to be this literal phrase where there's this physical place, this physical constraint. Like perhaps if you're watching a TV show and they always have God pictured as being up in a cloud looking down upon us. That, that's, that's sort of the TV understanding of God being physically in heaven. But when we look at the Bible, the Bible tells us that God created the heavens. That the heavens do not contain God. Rather, God contains the heavens. And putting God in heaven is like trying to put the ocean into a coffee cup. It is inconceivably impossible. You know, King Solomon understood this when he built the temple in Jerusalem. And he built this incredible temple according to God's plan, the place that God would dwell. And when it came time to dedicate that temple, we read his prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, where this is part of the prayer. He says, the heavens, <clears throat> even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I've built. You see, when we're praying to our Father in heaven, it's this idea, it's this, this metaphor language that is trying to convey the idea of transcendence. That God is not of this world. That he is beyond imagination. That he is incredible. He is inconceivable with our words. And that his omnipresence is not limited to heaven nor earth. Rather, he is seen throughout the heavens and throughout all creation and throughout the earth. And that his awesomeness exceeds the limited nature of our human language and our human phrases. Therefore, when we are praying to our God in heaven, we are speaking to the all-powerful, to the indescribable, to the majestic, the sovereign. There is none to compare like him, powerful God of the universe, is who we're speaking to. This is why when the Bible refers to God, you may have known this, but when the Bible refers to God, trying to describe him and name him, it uses nearly a thousand words and metaphors. A thousand. Trying to encapsulate all who he is. And among those, one stands alone as the name which God chose for himself. We find this in Exodus chapter 3. A famous passage that many of us will know where, where God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. 
remember the, the bush is burning near Moses, and Moses eventually wanders over and he sees it, and, and, and the voice comes and says, Moses, take off your sandals. Where you're standing is holy ground. And as Moses understands what is happening in this moment, they have a conversation. And in the course of that conversation, God reveals to Moses that he is going to send him to deliver his people out of slavery. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, Moses says this to God. Moses says to God, God, like, like, suppose for a second that I do go. Suppose I, I go there, God, and I go to the Israelites and I say to them, you know, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. But, but here's the thing, God, but when, what if they ask me, what is his name? If they ask me what is his name, what should I tell them, God? You see, we pick names today when we have, when we have a child or, or a nickname for somebody. We, we, we pick names. We tend to do it based upon things that, that we like the sound of. Sometimes there's some family tradition involved. Sometimes there's names we like and we don't like, things that we're familiar with. But it, it kind of really boils down to personal preference. But back then, a name didn't just identify a person, kind of a face in a crowd. See, back then, a name also revealed part of that person's disposition. Aspects of their history, their mission, it revealed part of their purpose. For example, the name Abraham means father of many. The name Eve of Adam and Eve means living. The name Jesus means savior. The name Esau means Harry. He was just a hairy baby, so they named him Esau. He's Harry. And so Moses asks, who should I say has sent me? He's not just asking, what is your name? He is saying, what could I tell them about your nature? What can I tell them about your character? And God responds this way in verse 14. He's, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God wished to be known. He wished to be worshipped by the name I am. Now, at first, that might seem very, very unhelpful. It might seem like it's double talk. I am who I am. But I want to suggest to you that's only because of the limited nature of our human language, our English language in particular. You see, this name, I am, was too holy for the Jewish people to speak. They feared to speak this name in case they may mispronounce it. And therefore blaspheme God because of how holy his name is. And in this name, in this phrase contained, I am who I am, it reveals to us that God is the self-existent and eternal God. He is the one who has no need of anything or anyone. It reveals to us that he is a relational God. The, the word can be translated Yahweh. And anytime we see the word Yahweh in Scripture, it's used in reference between God and his relationship, his personal relationship with his people. So he's relational. He is unchanging. He does not conform to our whims. He does not conform to the news of the day, any new philosophies that come out. He does not conform to the politics of the day. He is unchanging. He is trustworthy. He is true to keep his word, to keep his covenants, to keep his promises to us. And he is holy. He is not a servant to any. He is the sovereign God who reigns. And he is entirely set apart from everything and everyone. And that holiness is critical. Because the holiness of God's name is what we're referring to when we get to the part of the prayer that says, hallowed be your name. That word hallowed, when was the last time you used the word hallowed in conversation? Probably not. Here's a challenge for you. In the foyer following service, work in three hallowed's before you go home. See how long you're here for. 
before he can do that. We don't use the word hallowed very often, but that's okay. Actually, the Bible doesn't even use hallowed very much. It only shows up whenever we see the Lord's Prayer is when the word hallowed is used. But what does that word mean? Well, the word hallowed comes from the Greek word hagiazo. And it means to acknowledge or to revere God's name. It also carries the concept of to separate from the profane. To be separated from the profane. We, we see this, this principle uh, expressed in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, where John describes God like this. He says, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. You see, when you read John's writings, you'll find that he uses dichotomies a lot. He uses things like good and evil, life and death, light and dark. The idea he's trying to convey here is that God exists in perfection, perfect purity, and perfect holiness, and there's no hint of profane within him. But at the same time, there's no middle ground. There's, there's no kind of you know, light and dark. There's, there's no light gray. There's no middle ground in there. there. There's no shadow that sort of casts upon the light at all. You see, because even if a hint of the profane made its way into God's nature, into his character, he would cease to be God. So he is completely set apart, completely set apart from anything that is profane. His holiness requires it to be so. Therefore, only what is pure, only what is without blemish can be received by God. And that includes our acts of service, it includes our offerings, it includes our very beings, and it even includes our prayers. And even the best of us, as clean as we may believe we are, as pure and as good and upright as we might believe ourselves or our neighbor to be, all of us falls short of that goal. Now, there are many in the world who believe that they are good enough, that they are worthy to stand in God's presence one day because of the good works that they have done. They can gain God's approval through those things. And I understand that when the comparison is, is perhaps a, a group of people and we kind of number out the people in that group and some come out higher than others. I understand that if that's the measurement. But if we're going to measure ourselves against God, we all fall woefully short. It reminds me of, you've probably seen those commercials for like teeth whitening, like the crest white strips. You've seen those before? There's usually a few ladies talking there on a coffee table, and they're talking about how white their teeth are. And so you see them smile, and sure enough, hey, it's white teeth. But then one goes, well, did you do the tissue test, though? <laughs> and then they, they, they go to the mirror, and they smile in the mirror, and then they hold up a Kleenex. And at that moment, you actually see what white is. You thought, you, you thought, you thought that was white to begin with, and then you hold up the tissue. Now, you're going to go home and try this later. I know you are. And you look, and all of a sudden, it looks tarnished. You see, nothing actually changed about the color of their teeth. What changed was the measurement. What we were comparing, what we actually considered pure white to be. And so when we measure ourselves to one another, we can look pretty good. We can look pretty holy. We look pretty honorable. But when the measurement is us against God, we just look tarnished. We all fall short. So when we pray, when we pray, it's important for us to remember who God is, to know who God is and who we are in comparison to God. Now you may be thinking, well, how can we even pray then? 
Like, why would we even begin? We are stuck before we even utter the first word. We are already stuck. Well, Jesus is teaching us to start with remembering the awesomeness of God. Yeah, notice what else is in the name. Jesus also reminds us that the awesomeness of God, we can also refer to him as our Father. Now, the word Father is a relational term. It's a term that's meant to convey the idea that we can know and have a personal relationship with God. But how do we get from, from indescribable transcendent to relational imminent father? How do, how do we bridge that gap? Well, I want to share a story with you to help us understand that. There's this guy named John Murr who wrote a book called Travels in Alaska about his accounts as he went through the different regions and, and different people groups that he met up there. And he tells the story about two Indian tribes that were at constant war with each other. And after one had a victory over the other, it would just spark off fresh retaliation. And so it was this constant back and forth, battling back and forth, scores never fully being settled, year after year after year. And this one particular summer after the season of fighting had ended, one tribe sent a delegation to the other. And they said, winter is going to be here soon. And we have spent so much time fighting this year that neither of us have had time to gather food. So we are all facing starvation this winter. So we need to stop. And the other tribe said, no. You killed 10 more men than our people did. So you give us 10 men, even the score, and then we'll make peace. So the delegation was not sure how to receive that. But they went back home and they, and they told the chief what they wanted. And the chief stood up and he said, I am worth 10 men. Give me to them, kill me, and make peace. And in the presence of both tribes, that's exactly what they did. They took the chief, they killed him, they stopped fighting, they survived the winter. Now John Muir in his journal notes that when he visited this tribe, by the time he got there, almost all of them were Christians. And he inquired as to how that happened. And that's when they told him this story. But then they finished the story by saying shortly after these events took place, a missionary showed up. A missionary came and explained to us the purpose and the meaning of Jesus Christ's death. Now how he, like the chief, had stood in the gap, had been a mediator who paid the price to make peace possible. You see, when we see this phrase, hallowed be your name, it requires us to acknowledge the greatness of who God is, the set-apart nature of who God is. There's, there's this gap where, where he is holy and we are not. But it also directs us to understand our need of a mediator, who in this case is the very person who is teaching us the prayer. See, that word hallowed, that only shows up in the Lord's Prayer, that, that can be translated, this idea of set-apartness, of, of holiness. Also elsewhere in the Bible is used, and translated to sanctify. To sanctify means to make clean, to make holy. Such as in John 17, 19, when, when Jesus was praying about how he had devoted himself to the work for all of humanity and said, for them, I, I, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. I follow through on the work for which I came so that they too may be holy. So that they too may understand that forgiveness. Going back to John's dichotomies, we understand this idea now that, that God is in nature pure and holy and we are not. 
Therefore, we cannot associate. Because if we associate with God, we would tarnish who he is. And that cannot happen. So a separation exists. But Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. That's, that's that spiritual death, that separation. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ, God's son, who was worthy to pay the price, who was worthy to be the mediator, the one who would bridge the gap. And so that when we accept the gift, the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus makes possible, we become associated, identified with Jesus Christ. And therefore, as he as it says, for them I sanctify myself so that they too may be sanctified, allowing us to have that relationship with God. Because God is a relational God whom we can know personally because of Jesus Christ, who says we can call him our Father. And when we believe in Christ and accept what he did for us, that's the privilege that we have, to call God our Father. Now, this would have absolutely blown the minds of his Jewish disciples. Who, this whole idea that we could refer to God in relational, paternal terms, they would have thought this was foolishness. That we could be that familiar with the God that I just described earlier this morning. They would have thought it foolishness that we could be that familiar with that God. And I think there's a lesson in that for us today, too. Because I think we've lost some of that reverence. I think we've lost and become too familiar as we fail to reflect upon the greatness of who God is. And that has an impact upon our prayers. You see, John further goes on to reveal in his writings that the power of Jesus Christ upon the cross gives us the ability for us who receive him, for us to believe to become children of God. So that through Christ, we can know the unknowable. So that through Christ, we can approach the unapproachable. So that through Christ, we can talk to our Heavenly Father like a child talks to a parent. To a parent who delights in receiving them. And so when Jesus begins to teach his disciples to pray, he doesn't just give them words to recite. He gives them a model to follow. So that when we pray, we understand that we are entering into the courts of heaven. We enter into those courts with our petitions, with our thanksgivings. We may have our burdens and our questions with us. But we don't walk into the courts of heaven as intruders. We don't walk in as an inconvenience. We don't walk in as usurpers. We enter in as children of God. Who are welcome to boldly approach the throne of heaven. Where our loving father sits and says to us, what is it, my child? And with us revering the great things he hath done, we can speak to our Father because of Jesus Christ the Son. And we can say the words, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Remembering the awesomeness of to whom it is that we speak, of who we are in relationship to him, but also praying in the name of Jesus Christ, our mediator, who gives us access. So what's in a name? Well, a lot, as we have seen by looking at the first few words of this prayer today. See, God is not who we want him to be. God is not who we create him to be in the moment-by-moment moment basis. He's who Scripture says he is. He's who he has revealed himself to be. He is the inconceivable. 
the unapproachable sovereign God of heaven and of earth and of all that reigns within them. But because of Jesus Christ, he is also the relational God who we can know and who we can love and by whom we can be known and be loved. See, God doesn't suffer from any sense of low self-esteem or, or need for our praise. That's not why he needs to be revered and held high. We need that. We need to understand who it is that we worship, who it is that we speak to. Otherwise, without starting with that firm grasp, we won't pray correctly if that's not where we begin. Now, each week of this series, I want to give you a challenge, a, a short, simple challenge. And here's the challenge to start this week. If you're not regularly praying, start. Start praying. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be fanciful words. It doesn't have to be complex. It can be as simple as before you go to sleep, when you wake up in the morning. It could be while you're in the shower. It could be while you're driving to work. Find a moment and pray. Just offer words to God as though you were talking to a friend. But begin this way. Here's, here's the other part of the challenge. Don't just start praying. Begin praying this way. By remembering the awesomeness of God. Even if you don't have words, just allow your mind to process and to think about how awesome and incredible God is. To think about his work through Jesus Christ upon the cross. Start there. And by starting there, see how this has an effect upon the rest of your prayer. It'll probably change how you pray. If you start with the awesomeness of God and, and, and Jesus' work upon the cross that makes this even possible, maybe there's a chance that your God just got a little bigger and you'll pray a little bigger. Maybe there's a chance that you'll offer him something you thought you couldn't. Or you'll offer him something that you thought, you know, you'd just handle yourself. You thought all of a sudden, well, maybe, maybe he can handle it. Maybe he is the right one. Or perhaps you're well aware of his awesomeness, but not about his familiarity. That, that relational aspect, as, as you pray those words, you'll also be reminded that through Jesus Christ, that I can be honest and open. That I can share the hard parts of my life. See how that affects your prayer. Find some time to pray on a regular basis this week, beginning with how awesome God is and how accessible he is through Jesus Christ. And see how that affects your prayer life. And then we'll add a piece to it next week. And so as we close our time here right now, I want to invite you if you would join me in a closing word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, it is the greatest miracle that we can talk to it is truly amazing that you desire to listen to your children and that you delight in each one of us. God, we are dumbstruck to, to even think about your glory. Words always limit you, God. There are no words. You defy categories. You, you defy definitions. Because you are always more than the words that we have, but words are all that we have at times, Lord. And so, God, know our hearts. Know our hearts, Lord. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ your only true son who, who shares your very nature. We acknowledge that he is the one and only reason through which we can talk to you like this. That he is the reason that we can call you father. That it is through him that we have become your adopted children. God, for those whom you call, 
but have not yet accepted this incredible gift of forgiveness and adoption, Lord, may your spirit speak to them now. Prompt them in their hearts, Lord, to reach out to you. To say thank you, Jesus, for your work upon the cross. For dying for my sins, for bridging that gap that keeps me from having a relationship with God. Thank you for the eternal life that is mine by believing and receiving. God, may we as your people support, encourage, and embrace one another as we all seek to grow in our understanding and our expression of your great grace, truth, and love for all people. We pray in Jesus' name.